0: see it? Now ask you, how about you? Do you view God as here to serve you? Is that not the focus of our hearts so often? God, why don't I have this? God, why haven't you done this? You are here for me. And again, that's the twist. That's the man-centered gospel. That's what is permeating our country, permeating our world.
1: Hello and welcome again to Grace Marvel Weekly which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church, located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe let's listen now as pastor chris works exegetically through the text
0: scripture like that but i can't tell you if i had a, if i had a dime for every time i heard christians quote me one principle say i'm going to do this and it actually violated another principle of scripture, sometimes that they knew and sometimes that they didn't. If I had a dime for every time, I'd be a rich man. In fact, if I did that myself, I probably would be rich as me. So easy for us to look at one and say, I like that. Oh, that's meaty, that's juicy. God provides. So let's get that provision. Where have you heard that before, by the way? In every health, wealth, and prosperity teacher who has ever lived. This is Joel Osteen at his best. This is the whole nation of Nigeria. They live for health, wealth, and prosperity, teaching. If God is so great, prove it. If you trust him so much, prove it. Step out, claim the house, claim the car, claim the healing. This would only show that God is great. Why wouldn't he respond to that? Why can't you demand from the hand of God that which he has promised? Because it's sin to test God, as we will see. Don't take one principle without taking the other. You need the whole Bible not just one piece. That's why we preach the whole counsel of God. So what's the implication here? The implication, I think there are several. What he is saying is wrongly demonstrate the greatness of your faith in God's word. Now, wouldn't that be a real temptation for the fully human Jesus? Absolutely. There was no one who believed God's word more than Jesus. No one who would be susceptible to, look, this is what God's word says, so you ought to do it. So it's a real temptation designed specifically for Jesus who just affirmed his trust in the word of God. And so Satan comes at him this way. And certainly it is a tremendous temptation for us as well. William Hendrickson says this, obedience to Satan's proposal was tempting for what man is there who when asked to prove a point he has made does not feel as if he should immediately comply instead of first asking himself, what right has my prompter to ask me to prove this? And I tell you, Jesus was fully man, wise man, wise man. A man controlled by the Spirit of God and the truth of the Word of God, but he was truly a man. Why wouldn't you instantly respond? Of course I trust, so I'll do that. Again, Jesus isn't going to because of his true understanding of Scripture, because of the power of the Spirit working to help him understand all of Scripture. Jesus will not respond, but a true temptation. And again, a true temptation for us. We say, look, I trust God's Word. And that's how Satan so often plies this particular temptation. Don't you trust God? Maybe Let me put it another way. Don't you have enough faith? Where have you heard that? Again, every faith healer who ever preached, every charlatan and fake who ever got on TBN, that's what they say. They're mimicking Satan. Just throw yourself off the temple. Just prove it. He said he'd provide. He said he's good. And by the way, you're the son of God. Don't you believe that what he says is true? Throw yourself off careful. This this will get you. This will trap you. Even if you're not a health, wealth, and prosperity person, you guys are going, come on, you got the wrong crowd. We're here because we don't listen to those guys. But I ask you, how often does this still come true for us? And and I know that it's true because we complain about what we do have. And we we would never say that we're health, wealth, and prosperity. But when we don't get what we want, this is still our tendency. We whine and complain and grieve over the things that God hasn't given us that we're sure we deserve. So we will oftentimes try to put him in a position and, 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 sh- and prove to him, as it were, our, our faith by getting him to do something that we want. Wrongly demonstrating the greatness of your faith in God's word. William Hendrickson says the false trust in the Father, which the devil demanded of Jesus in the second temptation, was not any better than the distrust he had proposed in the first. Not any better. It's the same root. Trust in yourself. Manipulate circumstances yourself and and a true pride that that could have. Again, we talked about the impeccability of Jesus. Could he have ever truly sinned? No. Could he be fully tempted? Yes. And could he be tempted towards pride? Absolutely. Because can pride arise within the heart of within an innocent heart? Can. Again, I'm not saying Jesus could have sinned, hear me carefully, but I'm saying he could be tempted to pride. Because that is it is a natural, human and right tendency to want to please. That's right and proper that we would please others, that we would do what was good for them, and that we would bring them, you know that, w- that we would please them. That's right. When that's taken too far, what is it? It's pride. And when we focus on ourselves, it's arrogance. And this can easily be it. Demonstrate the greatness of your faith. Demonstrate what a great Christian you are by misapplying Scripture. The second, I think, the, the next implication here is force God, as it were, to demonstrate the greatness of His power. Think of it this way. Essentially, Satan Satan is saying, if you won't use your power, your exercise of deity, then let God use his. Have him demonstrate. You deserve it. You're the son of God. You are out here again suffering. And also, you deserve to be seen as great, not stuck here in the wilderness. You deserve. and, And doesn't God deserve to have everyone see his power? He is that great, right? Oh, here's the glory of God twist. Show God is great by doing something which will make him prove it. Build a big church if you might find a little application here. Do anything necessary to show the power of God because isn't he going to be shown to be great if your church has a, a 20,000 people in it? So do whatever you need to do to get there. I'm making application. to didn't tell Jesus to build the church that way. But I'm telling you, the, the push is the same. Force God into action by whatever means necessary because he's great anyway, right? And how often is it now that those words for the glory of God are being co-opted under this kind of temptation? We're just doing this for the glory of God. He'll be shown to be great if we have this or this or this. And yet the way they're doing it is wrong. It's unscriptural. They're taking one principle and then they are disobeying others to get to this one. Force God to show the greatness of his power. If Satan can't get Jesus to use his own power, he will tempt him to force God to use his divine power in a manner that God himself has not planned. Again, who's running the show here? Satan. I will determine. I will tell you to determine what to do. And then ultimately, he's saying, you run the show, Jesus. It's still the same because that's third. Exert your own will to accomplish your purpose. Fundamentally, that remains the same whether it's using your deity to turn the stones into bread, or whether it's using your humanity to draw out the protection of God by throwing yourself off the temple. Either way, you're in control. Just do it. And in this case, maybe even stronger to show the glory of God. Because, you see, before it would be essentially Jesus showing his own glory. I'll make the stones bread. See, I'm deity. I can accomplish my purpose. No, here it is. And isn't that what Jesus came for? To show the glory of God? Do you see how strong this temptation is? It was Jesus' food to do the will of his Father. If this is truly what this scripture, Psalm 91, demands, or at least strongly implies, then Jesus ought to do this. A very strong temptation. Exert your own will to accomplish your own purpose. Now, here's the kicker. It would be to act as if God is there to serve his Son rather than the reverse. You see it? Now I ask you, how about you? Do you view God as here to serve you? Is that not the focus of our hearts so often? God, why don't I have this? God, why haven't you done this? You are here for me. And again, that's the twist. That's the man-centered gospel. That's what is permeating our country, permeating our world. God is here for you in that sense you personally, individually, for your will and your desire. God certainly is here to save you. Don't mishear me. But he is not here to accomplish your will. It's fundamental to essentially all temptation that God would be here to serve you. And this is what the world wants. The world wants a God who is their butler. And we don't don't put it that way. See, it comes in ways like this. It comes in ways like, just show the glory of God. Throw yourself off the temple. That'll show a great he, is. he promised this. You're the son of God. You deserve this. So do it this way. It comes to us subtly. It comes to us so in a thousand forms. God ought to serve you. And it shows in our lives as we cry out to God, God, why haven't you done what I want? Why isn't my family the way you want it or the way I want it? Why isn't my church the way even I want it? Why, why aren't why are my job circumstances what I want? Why haven't you given me the giftedness that I want? the looks that I want, the relationship that I want. God, serve me and show how great you are. That's what we tackle on the back end, isn't it? Give me a good college and a great career according to your will, which is implying what? That is your will. And so I'm just going to put that on at the end because I know that's what I want. So certainly that's what you want. Give me a great marriage according to your will. I don't, because does God desire for us to have jobs and marriages and good churches? He does. But He doesn't do those things for you. He does truly do them for His own glory. You benefit as you find your satisfaction fully in Him, but it isn't about you. Satan is saying, Jesus, it's about you. Make God look good by doing what you want to do, demonstrating this reality. Well, what is Jesus' response? Again, a true temptation, the full depth of temptation of Jesus as fully man in the power of the Spirit of God, Jesus said to him, mark this in your Bible, circle it, on the other hand. He doesn't say, Satan got that wrong, sorry, let's, uh, let's, let's debate the interpretation of this. You blew it. You didn't, you didn't interpret that right. God doesn't really provide for his people. You, you misunderstood that. He can't because Satan didn't get it wrong in the interpretation. He quotes him a principle now that we will see that undoes Satan's application. And that's where he debates him. He says, on the other hand, he uses another scripture again. Notice, right, on the other hand, it is written, the exact same phrase that Satan used was battle scripture with scripture. But this time, let's get the principle under which the other principle you've just given me is encompassed. You have to put these together. So Jesus uses scripture again. Remember, he could have just quoted, he could have brought something new and boy, wouldn't this be the place to do it. Satan quoted him scripture, so why not well, bring from on high some inspired word? And again, Jesus did that all the time. I'm not saying he can't do that. He did that, but not here, because scripture is sufficient. Right? It was sufficient at this time for what Jesus needed. The Old and New Testament that we have is sufficient for everything we need, which is why we don't need more revelation, which is why we don't need God speaking to us verbally now, because we have it all. Well, it was sufficient. For Jesus, the Old Testament was sufficient at this time. So he says, it is written. By the way, Isaiah 8.20 gives us this principle. It says, to the law and to the testimony, if they, that is the false prophets, do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dog. This was the test of false prophecy. That is essentially if, they were, if you were given another word from a prophet that didn't fit with the principles of the rest of Scripture. There was the idea. Look, if it's not according to this testimony, right? And, and, and by the way, the false prophets weren't coming and saying, Scripture says this, we contradict this, it's exactly opposite. They weren't doing that. They were saying, look, yeah, we know the rest of the other prophets said this, we're saying this, now here's what you're supposed to go do. And what they were telling them to do, the ways they were having them act, were in contradiction to the other principles that have been given in Scripture. And So he says, look, if they do that, If they don't speak according to this word, that is the Old Testament word of the prophets that had already been given, it is because they have no dawn to the law and to the testimony. I would say to the Bible, to the fullness of revelation. That's how we would say that now. Jesus uses Scripture. And so if anyone else comes purporting to say anything that contradicts the principles of Scripture, they are wrong. And that is all the principles of Scripture taken together. Because that's number two. Jesus uses proper hermeneutics. Yes, Jesus was a good interpreter of his own word. And he himself was not able to bend the rules and say, well, if it says one thing and then another thing is opposite that, well, you can do them both and it's okay. That's what the world's telling you today. This is kind of hermeneutics being used. It says one thing here, it says another thing here. Well, I know they're opposite, but they're both right. They're not both right. One of the interpretations is wrong if it says, if you've got two that contradict each other. Well, these don't contradict. Yes, God cares for His people, but yes, what does Jesus say? You shall not test the Lord your God. He cares for His people in His way, at His time, with His purposes, according to His own will, not yours. Don't test the Lord your God. There's a principle by which the principle of God's provision for His people must be lived out, and that is you have to trust God, take Him at His word, and not demand from Him things that that, that are not His will at that time. So Jesus uses proper hermeneutics. On the other hand, is that principle. I mean, you have probably heard someone say, you know, I know divorce is wrong, but God wants people to be happy. And and there's truth to that. There's there's principle of a fulfilled life that God desires for you to be joyful. Now, even that, I think, is a a misinterpretation of when they say that. But nonetheless, God wants me to be happy, so therefore, divorce is fine. What? How does that make sense? So God hates divorce. He says, don't get divorced. And yet, he also says that he wants you to be happy, joyful, fulfilled. I'm not fulfilled in my marriage, so therefore, divorce becomes an option. Therefore, I have contradicted Scripture. I've used one principle, here's the kicker, that I like better. See, I like that one. I don't like the no divorce. I like the fulfillment. So what does Scripture say? You going have to put those two together. Don't get divorced and find fulfillment in God. Don't get divorced and find that he is your sufficiency, and that he will use you to work in the life of your partner, of your spouse. And I could go on and on with every time you would say, well, Scripture says this, so I'm going to do this, even though it contradicts another principle. Jesus uses the proper hermeneutics. He brings up, then he identifies the right principle that goes together with God's provision so that he does not sin. Because what Satan asked him to do was most certainly sin. Why? Because essentially Satan was saying, don't trust God. Again, you haven't seen his provision at this time. Let's force his hand. Let's show some provision. Let's make him show it. So that you, again, you force his hand to provide for you. Essentially saying, lack faith. Don't trust that God is going to provide. Make sure he's going to by forcing him into a position where he has to. This is sin. He's quoting, Jesus is quoting when he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, which says exactly that. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But, But fascinating, Jesus doesn't quote the last part of that verse either. Because it isn't necessary, just as Satan skipped a piece that wasn't necessary, so does Jesus at the end, the last part of Deuteronomy 6.16 is, as you tested him at Massah, because it's speaking of the historical situation. But I'd like to turn to that to show you what Jesus was getting at when he said, don't tempt the Lord your God. He's drawing it out of the context of what God was teaching Old Testament Israel. Remember, Old Testament Israel was given, 1 Corinthians 10 says, as an example for us. That we would not sin in the way that they sinned. So here we have another example, turn to Exodus 17.1. Now in our chronology of the nation of Israel, they have just been delivered from the nation of Egypt with a great deliverance, 10 mighty plagues. Right? They have just come through the Red Sea and they're on their way to Mount Sinai. I mean, chapter 14 is the, the Parting of the Red Sea, chapter 15 is the song of Moses, and chapter 16 is the provision of manna. God has provided for them in every way, except one, they think, and now they are without water. They've been delivered from slavery, they've been delivered from the Egyptian army, they've been delivered from hunger, but they've just got to have one thing more. Isn't that the way it is? Look at chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, isn't where well, they sinned in the wilderness, and so that's the name of it. According to the command of the Lord encamped camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. God led them, and they're in a place where there is no water. So what do you assume about God, knowing what you know? He's going to provide it. He has already provided them food. He's already provided them deliverance. We just went over that. And they've seen it all. They have been through it all. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why are you asking? I I can provide you water. But notice what he says. Why do you put or why do you test the Lord? What is the test? They're doubting his provision. He just did all of those other things. And now they have no water. Now, is water a real need? Yeah, it's pretty important. You die after about three days without water. Are they really thirsty? They're out there in the desert. Are, Are they in need of water? Absolutely. But has God met their every need? Do they know that He is with them? Because yesterday, as it were, He gave them manna. A couple days before He led them through the Red Sea, He is clearly there. It goes on then, verse 3, the people thirsted there for water. They were driven by their physical desire. They grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Evil Moses brought us out here to kill us. I mean, he just delivered them. He's been the agent of deliverance, God working in all of this. Instantly they turn against him. That's for another day. But so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me. It's like they were coming at him, you know, they're getting the stoning pit ready. Moses, you, you brought us out to kill us. We need a new leader. So would be the last time they did stuff like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Fascinating. God provides their need as they demand. But God is not happy. He's not pleased with this demand. They sinfully demand it. Look in the next verse. He named the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, here's what they were really saying Is the Lord among us or not? Show your presence now. We demand a visible presentation of your presence. Where have you heard that before? In nearly every church and and movement that's on the on the fringes of the charismatic movement, we must see a new miracle. We must have something new. But I tell you this, the sight of miracles does not increase faith ever. It doesn't increase faith. In in fact, the sight of miracles, and, and always for unbelievers, I'll put it that way, for certain, what it does is make them want more. And even in our own lives, it tends to do the same. We see another thing that God has provided. Think about it. You sit here this morning with what? Clothes, food, houses, most of you, cars, almost all of you, health, the vast majority of you. Every provision you could ever want. And did you grumble this past week? Nod your heads yes. Well, I won't force you into doing that, but I would assume that was okay. You wanted what? One thing more. God, just show me something else. God, just give me something else. I have a good family. I want a better one. I've got good circumstances. I want better circumstances. I've got a good job. I want a better one. I've got nice children. I want better children. I want more. God's shown. He's shown you all of this. He's shown you everything that you have, and you want more. So do I. You're not alone. You're not alone. It's the essence of this test. The nation of Israel had been given everything by God. He's providing for them. Saying, we want more. Are you really here? Satan saying to Jesus, "Prove that God is really here. Throw yourself off the temple. Prove it. Live by sight, and not by." You see, when we live by faith, when we do not see it, but trust God for it, then we grow. It isn't that God doesn't provide visible things for us. I already told you, what has he provided all of you with? Are you to thank him for it and praise him for it? And many of you do. Don't don't get me wrong. I know you do. And it doesn't keep us from wanting more. It is living by faith that causes us to grow. When you don't see. And when things are taken from you, if you were naked and hungry, cast out on the streets of Maryville with no home and no car and no family, would God still be good? Would he still be among you if you were his child? Absolutely. And would your faith grow when you trusted him by leaps and bounds? It would. Probably more greatly than it does today as you sit with everything you need with very little to want. I that your faith can't grow, This simply does not seem to grow as much. Jesus identifies the principle. And and here's the applications. We are not to doubt God's ability to provide. It's sin. That's testing the Lord. God, I'm not sure you can. So I'm gonna force you to do it. I need to see it again. And don't we do that? God, you provided for me yesterday, I know, but I need to see it today, or I will not trust you. Is God required to give you food today? He's not. Is he required that you would have clothing today? It's not required. Is it required that your family members would all survive today? It isn't. Do I pray that they will? I do. Is it required? No. And if he takes it, is he still providing for you? He is. The Lord is among you. Will you live by faith and not by sight? We are not to doubt God's ability to provide Refusing to believe that God will do what he has promised, thus doubting his goodness, power, wisdom, and sovereignty, testing God as to challenge his claim that he can do or will do all that he has promised, yet in his timing, in his way, for his glory, not yours. And Satan is seeking to get Jesus to demonstrate a doubt of God's ability, which, of course, would have been the end of everything. The Son of God cannot doubt God the Father. You and I should not doubt God the Father, and we should not force his hand. That's next. We are not to demand God's demonstration of provision. Miracles suffer from the law of diminishing returns. You can never do enough of them. The people will always just want one more. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, we tend to be the same. Now, I I will say this. God has chosen to do one thing upon which you are to ground all of your hope and trust. It is not that he does nothing. He has chosen to do one thing that is his demonstration of his plan, purpose, and power to provide for you, to protect you, to bring you to himself, to bring glory through you to him. He has done one thing. What is it? He died for you. You need nothing else. Nothing. This is what scripture says, Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is all that we need. That was last week. Do you believe it? It is the foundation of everything. Your faith is grounded in the reality of what Christ has done for us. It is finished. He has done it all. Do you think that God will waste the provision of his son by not then bringing you to himself, not protecting you in such a way that you would have life and have godliness? Would he ever waste an ounce of the blood of his son shed for you? He will not. And so you do not need to force his hand. You do not need to demand from him anything. He's already given you everything. We have a hard time believing it. And we would do what Jesus didn't. We would test the Lord our God. We would choose to live by our sight and not by our faith. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, therefore being always of good courage. Paul talking about the difficulties of what he had faced in the church and all these other things that had come. He said, yeah, I've been given the Spirit as a pledge. That is, God is going to do what he said. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what you're called to do right now. You don't need to force God's hands. You don't need to throw yourself off the temple, as it were, to demand that he would provide you this or that. He will one day come for you. That's when you'll see him. That's when you'll see his power fully revealed. You trust by faith that he will do what he has said. And he does it, does he not? Everything you actually need as you seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, as now though you walk by faith, you don't see. And Jesus is setting us that pattern. He would not be tempted to force God into sight. And you don't need him in sight in that way either. You have enough in his word based on what he has done for you on the cross. It is fully sufficient. And would you live that way? Would you overcome this temptation? Here are my questions for you. Are you prepared each day to face the temptation to test God that your adversary will surely bring every day to try to make God prove himself, to say, it isn't enough, I need more, do this, do that. Are you prepared to face that temptation? Do you know Scripture well enough to both interpret it and apply it properly? There's nothing worse in this world than for a church to provide just a little bit of Scripture. See, that's even worse than none. Because what happens is I give you a little, I don't explain it to you, I don't give you the the, the big picture, and then you take that little piece, something that I told you, and you apply it wrongly in all kinds of devastating ways because I didn't give you enough truth, and you didn't seek out enough truth to be able to apply it all. It's devastating. A shallow church in Scripture has more people disobeying than, really, than anywhere else. Obviously, rank pagans don't obey God. But do you know Scripture well enough to both interpret and apply it properly? Is your faith in God strong enough to believe that He will provide for you on the basis of His sacrifice of Christ? He will provide what you need. And are you continually growing in your ability to walk by faith and not by sight? Are you growing? Do you take out His word? Do you trust what He's done? And does that show up in your life because of a calm, gentle, kind, humble, joyful attitude that ever increases even in the midst of difficulty. Don't throw yourself off the temple. Instead, trust what God has said in his word and watch him do the very work that he desires, not what you require. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together. And I thank you for the truth of your word that we may trust, that we must trust. And that you have not demanded that we trust it apart from the work of your son, the grieving of your Son, which is our greatest gift and our surest understanding, our fullest assurance of your provision and of your determination to bring us to yourself, to protect us, to provide for us so that we might one day spend eternity with you. And Lord, I pray that we would demonstrate that to a watching world. Not a sensationalism of demanding acts of visible provision, but a quiet, steady Powerful faith that demonstrates our trust that you are the God that you promise in your word. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Marvel Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, But you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.